let me begin by reading from the 12th chapter of the Gospel according to John. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there. And Mary was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary, therefore, took a pound of very costly, genuine spikenard ointment and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the ointment. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Jesus therefore said, Let her alone, in order that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but you do not have always me. And then from the 13th chapter of the Gospel of John, beginning at verse 21. Jesus became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. And there was reclining on Jesus' breast one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. And he, leaning back thus on Jesus' breast, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus therefore answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. And so when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after the morsel, Satan then entered into him, and Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now no one of those reclining at table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was say to him, saying to him, Buy the things we need for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. And after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. And then from Matthew's account continuing, One of the twelve, who was called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me, and I will deliver him to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. And when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death, and they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate the governor. When Judas, his betrayer, saw that he was condemned, he repented and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned in betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. May God help us to understand the meaning of this part of his word. And
several weeks ago, we began to study about people who came into the path of Jesus as he started toward the cross. Because when you come face to face with Jesus Christ, it's a very revealing thing. It's always a test. When old Simeon held that baby up in the temple at his dedication, he said that he would be set for the fall and the rising of many, that he would be like a test stone to test what is true and what is false. And so it was all through his life, and so it is to this day, and so it was especially in that last week of his life, in that Passion Week, which we began to celebrate with Palm Sunday today. We looked at one of his closest and most beloved friends when we looked at Simon Peter the one whom he was to change from sifting sand to a rock-like personality, one who is to be an example for us so that we might take encouragement from him, knowing that even in his blunders that we can learn from Peter and understand that our Lord Jesus Christ forgives and that he restores and he makes lives over again. Then last week we began to look more closely into some other figures that entered into his life. We saw a conscience-stricken politician whose name was Pilate, who was confronted with Jesus Christ, very uncomfortably so. He was looking forward to the day when he could retire with his government pension and go and live on the beaches at Ostia outside of Rome. And here, here he is confronted with the Son of God, thinking that he is making a judgment when Pilate himself is the one who is being judged, little realizing that he will be the most famous Roman in all of human history for billions of people down through the next 2,000 years will be calling his name when they recite the creed that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. We saw that in Pilate we did not meet a mechanical man who was some moral monster, but we met a politician who was driven back and fro by his own ambitions and who knew what was right but was willing to sacrifice his conscience to try to wash away his guilt with water and delivered up one whom he knew to be innocent, to be crucified as a matter of expediency, thinking that he would hear no more of the matter. Then we saw how Jesus was taken from Pilate the Compromiser to Herod. He also was a politician and a puppet king. This Herod had been that Herod whose grandfather had been responsible for the death of the innocents in Jerusalem, in Bethlehem. He had also been the one who was responsible for the death of John the Baptist. He was a dissolute sensualist, the type of the secular man that we so often meet today. He was interested in movements that take place, such movements as Jesus and John the Baptist would be a part of. And as a matter of curiosity, he would like to see Jesus perform a miracle. 
maybe take a few notes on what he said, and in majestic inactivity and detachment, sit back in etherized objectivity and observe what Jesus says, but Jesus will allow no man to do that. Herod had to make a decision, for a decision was being made about him. Jesus never spoke a word to him because he does not reveal himself to blind unbelief such as Herod had. The judgment of God is never more certain than when he grows silent and does not speak. From that man we see Jesus confronted with another who, quite unlike Herod, did not want to see Jesus at all but was compelled to see him. He was Simon the Cyrenian from North Africa who happened to see a crowd of people gathered alongside the road chanting and screaming and wondering what they were all screaming and yelling about when a Roman soldier demanded of him that he pick up the cross of Jesus and bear it. Very unwillingly, he, pick up, he picked up the cross of Jesus and bore it that day. And so we find his name in the Gospels in a place of honor with his sons Rufus and Alexander being mentioned. And at the end of Paul's letter to the Romans, we find his name again. And so we believe this man to have become a believer because that day he did something he didn't want to do. And as a result of doing that unpleasant task at that cross of Jesus Christ, a miracle took place and he became a Christian. And then there is that thief who was nailed upon a cross alongside Jesus. Another thief was nailed there. In the horrid agony of that day, as it began to wear on, we see things take place, marvelous things in the power of that cross. One thief taunts Jesus and demands that if he really is the Son of God, then why in the world doesn't he call for legions of angels to sweep this crowd of Romans into hell and bring them down from the cross? And the other thief whose feet are nailed to the cross and whose hands are nailed to the cross, who can do nothing but suffer, turns to Jesus in his suffering. He had heard them call him Lord. Perhaps the Sunday before he had heard that Palm Sunday crowd shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the name of the one, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And he believed that he truly was the Savior, and so he said, Lord, remember me. He didn't ask to sit on his right hand or his left hand in the kingdom. Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. We know this man was saved, for Jesus said, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Always I am speaking with people who listen on the radio and who suffer and who think, what earthly good can it be that I suffer day after day? All that thief could do was suffer, and he's probably won more people to faith in Jesus Christ than any other man in the record of the Gospels, because he shows us that there is hope. Hope even at the last instant. And then we come to this last 
day before Palm Sunday, and we see some interesting things take place. I want you to see the contrast that occurs between Mary, the sister of Martha, and the sister of Lazarus. When Jesus had gone into their home, this Mary is not to be confused with the woman in Luke chapter 7 who was a woman of the street who broke, broke the box of ointment upon his feet and washed them with her tears. This probably happened more than once. But this Mary, in an act of devotion, breaks a precious box of ointment, and the fragrance fills the room. And Jesus says that as long as the gospel is preached, this devotion which she has demonstrated here will be spoken of as a memorial tour. But there is a sinister one in the group, and he says, why is this waste made? This waste upon Jesus. Why wasn't this sold and given to the poor? And John is careful to tell us he didn't say this because he cared for the poor, but because already he is caught up in avarice and greed, and he wanted money, and he wanted to steal it. So that introduces us to Judas. Jesus prayed all night the night before he chose his disciples. He must have considered carefully each one of them when he called them. I think that every time he spoke about money and its enormous dangers, he must have looked Judas right in the eye and wanted him more than anything else in the world not to give in to greed. Judas was a heady politician. He was zealous, and he hated Rome. And I'm sure that he wanted the yoke of the Romans to be overthrown, as did the others as well. And when he saw the marvels that Jesus did and heard the words that he spoke in the great crowds that followed him, he thought, surely, if Rome is ever to be overthrown, this is the one who can do it. But he wanted a Messiah that would fit his expectations. And this is the one thing we can never do. When we go to God, we go as broken-hearted sinners. And if we do, he will accept us and make us what we ought to do. But we don't negotiate terms. We accept the grace which is extended to us. So Judas after that feeding of the 5,000 that's recorded in John chapter 6, and the people all came to Jesus and decided that they could make him the bread man and the king by sheer power of the miracles which he had done in Jesus, let his disciples know that he would have no part in this type of kingdom. And you remember a great many of them went away when Jesus spoke of the bread which did not perish the bread which was his body, the life which should be assimilated and lived out in him. Eating of my 
flesh and drinking of my blood, that many from that moment turned back and went no more with him. And you will know that it was Peter who, when Jesus looked wistfully at his disciples and said, Will ye also go away? It was Peter who said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we'll always love Peter for that. And if you don't go to Jesus, who are you going to go to? With your notebooks of objectivity and looking over the religious teachers of history, are you willing to submit to his lordship? The only thing you really know is the thing you have to know. And you can never know Jesus until you surrender your life to him completely. A man once came to interview an old follower of John Wesley's after John Wesley had been dead. He was going to write a book on John Wesley. And so he said to this old man who had known Wesley himself, and Wesley had been dead for years, what he was going to do in exposing Wesley. And when he finished his description of his book, the old follower of John Wesley looked at this young theologian and writer and said to him, young man, the well is deep and you have nothing to draw with. He couldn't understand the spiritual power of a man like John Wesley, who was yielded to the Lord. He couldn't understand it at all. That's why Horace Walpole, one of the great men of British letters, went to hear what he called Wesley's opera and came back away from it, disenchanted. You must be willing to love Jesus. And somehow Judas's greed would not allow him to do that. And it caused him to grow callous and cold. C.S. Lewis has a tremendous book called The Four Loves. And right at the end of his book, he makes a tremendous statement. He says, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. There's no love in hell. Well, Judas had been attracted to the glory, and if he had been willing to submit to the glory of which Jesus was seeking to bring in, which would glorify God, all would have been well. But he was not. So then he decided he would get what he could out of it, and he would sell his master, and the greed begins to enter in. 
it's almost incomprehensible to us to think that such a thing as this would happen, that for 30 pieces of silver, Jesus would be sold. But I think after that Palm Sunday when he had seen the children shouting their hosannas to Jesus and the big crowds following him and recognizing that it would be in this week of all the weeks that Jesus could surely claim his throne in a big, powerful way, that Judas realized he wasn't going to do it, and so he went to bargain and see what he could get out of it with Annas, the high priest. The poets pick it up at this point and tell us about it. One of them says, I think you know, Annas, the price is low for such a man. There is not in Judea so fair a face to rest your eyes upon so smooth a breast to shatter with a spear. Besides, he's young and been well loved. There was a woman once who left the street and followed him into a hostile house and knelt and pressed her lips against his feet. He has no money, yet men have gone with him and left their homes and worldly goods behind because his voice was gentle when he spoke, and when he looked at them, his eyes were kind. Admit it, Annas, the price is low. For 30 coins, one buys a plot of ground, a harlot's kiss, a cask of wine, perhaps a slave, but seldom such a man as this for 30 pieces of silver. What do we sell Jesus for? Are we going to sell him for some popularity? Are we going to sell him for a moment of wild pleasure? Are we going to sell him so that we can be successful in some particular area? Just as Pilate was being judged by Jesus and just as Herod was being judged by Jesus, Judas also is being judged by Jesus, and Jesus loves him right up to the very end. And even there in that upper room, it's to the credit of the other disciples that they did not say, Lord, is it going to be Judas? But they said, Lord, is it I? They asked themselves that question. And finally, as a token of honor, Jesus said, the one to whom I dip the morsel of bread and hand it to him, he will be it. He knew what Judas had done because he knew what was going on, just like he knows what's going on in your heart right now and in my mind right now. And Judas took the morsel and went out into the darkness, into the night that knew no end, He did not give himself to the Lord as he should have. The people who owned the little donkey were so kind that day I've often thought of the wonders of Palm Sunday and the happiness with the children. You ever think about the figures behind the scenes? I don't know who owned that donkey. I'm sure glad that modern-day promotionists didn't get a hold of it. If Madison Avenue had had this, they would have called in all the TV crews and the ad makers to 
write up the scenario and they would have had the professors from Jerusalem and all the dignitaries from every place in the Sanhedrin present to greet Jesus at the outskirts of the city. But God's ways are not like man's ways. I'm sure that someone would have put a sign on the donkey if it had been today, this donkey, courtesy of Isaac and Jacob's rent a donkey. Uh, some idiot thing like this would have taken place. We don't even know who the man was. But when they came and said the master needs him, that's all they needed to say. Do you give that willingly to the Lord? If he said, look, I want your son or your daughter to be a minister of the gospel, I want them to be a missionary and go out into New Guinea and help those poor people there, would you be willing to give that way? The Lord said, I need your teaching ability, I need your bulldozer, I need your truck, I need whatever you've got. Would you be willing to share like this man did? Judas wanted to get what he could out of it, and as a result of it, he lost big. You see, the greed got him. The greed got him. And greed will get us all if we allow it to. But thou, improvident Judas, since thou art resolved to sell a thing whose value is beyond the power of arithmetic art to reckon up, proportionate thy price in some more near degree. Let thy demand make buyers who this Christ is understand. Ask all the gold that rolls on India's shores. Ask all the treasures of the Eastern Sea. Ask Herod's exchequer, ask the high priest's crown, ask Caesar's mighty scepter in his throne. Ask all the silver of the glittering stars. Ask all that can by anything be given. Ask bliss, ask paradise, ask heaven. And yet still you have not asked enough for him who is the prince of life, the Lord's beloved, the savior of the world. Urge him no more with sense and reason. He resolves to traffic with the priests, for now no other god but money can he seize. He nothing sees at all and cares not how he makes his bargain with them so he may but have this wretched sum and ready pay. Fyodor Dostoevsky, very much like Solzhenitsyn, was once exiled in Siberia and he learned from his experience there the account of the prodigal son he became a tremendous believer in Jesus Christ. And Dostoevsky has an interesting parable. He tells of a woman who had a horrible, horrible dream in which she had died and gone to hell. And there in all of the flames and the tortures of hell, she began to cry out for some mercy. And she cried to one of the angels in heaven, isn't there anything you can do to bring me any relief, anything, anything? And one of the angels said, if you can remember anything that you've ever done in your life that was not greedy or selfish, tell me what it is. That may help. And the woman thought and thought and thought and thought, and then she remembered one day she was making a stew. 
and she picked up an old withered carrot that she was scraping to put in the stew, and she looked out the window and saw a beggar coming toward her back door. And the carrot didn't look good enough to go in the stew anyway, and she heard his knock, so she went to the door and handed him the carrot. And so she told the angel this. And so forthwith there was let down from heaven by a thread a withered carrot all the way down into the fires of hell. And this woman eagerly grasped on to this carrot, and it started to lift her up. And then other people grabbed hold of her, and they said, let me come up with you, and they held on to her, and she turned around, and her real nature came out, and she said, let go of me, this is my carrot. And boom, she was back. Her selfishness was there. Now, we're not saved by works, but greed becomes a god. And when it does, it has a damning effect on us. Because money is so enormously helpful, it is so enormously dangerous as well. And so the answer to that greed has to be to put everything at the feet of Jesus and to let him have it all. And then lastly, poor Judas. Judas went back after he saw what he had done and took the pieces of silver that had made him feel so rich shortly before and flung it at the high priest and said, take it. I don't want it anymore. Even his own heart, which had been so hardened by sin, causes him to see the enormity of what he has done, and he flings it back at the high priest, and yet he goes to them for help instead of to Jesus. And it's always the way of the devil's crowd that they smirkingly say to him, what is that to us? You see to it. After you have committed some evil thing and you go back to those evil people, they'll say to you, what is that to us? You go your way. It's none of our business anymore. If he had gone to Jesus at Golgotha and had fallen down at the feet of that cross, the one who had cried out first, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, the one who took the thief home to heaven with him, that one would have looked at Judas and said, Oh, Judas, you know I will forgive you too. But in the madness of despair which had shriveled his soul, he went out into the darkness and hanged himself, destroying the life that God had given him and cutting himself off from any testimony to grace. I said in the beginning that we know the thief on the cross was saved because Jesus said today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. And yet Jesus had to say the terrible words in his great prayer in John 17, I have lost none of them. None of them is lost but the son of perdition. 
Judas went to his own place, the writer of the book of Acts says very tactfully, and that own place must not be a place of joy. But the answer to Judas' guilt is the same answer to your guilt and mine. And it was there at that cross. And the answer to guilt is, is grace. That the Lord will forgive us, receive us, cleanse us, make us what we ought to be. That he's here this morning. You know, on Monday, Thursday, we're going to have communion here. I love to tell the story. Maybe it's meant for someone special today who feels your guilt and wants the grace of God. Something I took out of the Reader's Digest a long time ago. About a boy had gotten out of prison and was on his way home on a train. He was ashamed of all that he had done, so he had sent a letter ahead to his family and told them that if they did not want him to come in, that they were to do nothing, but that if they did want him to come home, since they lived near the railroad tracks, to go outside and tie a white rag or cloth on the apple tree that stood near the railroad track, and he would know when he saw that white flag that they meant for him to come home. He'd be welcome. He was nervous, and the man sitting by him asked him what was taking place. And so he told him that he had left prison and was going home and about his letter. And he said, it's not many miles now until we get to the station where I live. And he said, I'm so scared I can't look out the window. And as they began to arrive, the man shook him and said, son, look. And when he looked out the window at the old house and the apple tree in back of it, it was covered with white rags, all beckoning him home by the grace of God and the welcome. Thursday, when we take the Holy Supper, God is telling us that at Calvary he exhausted himself and he paid the price for our sins and that he will take us and make us what we ought to be and lead us in life in the way that we should go. Let us pray. Oh God, our Heavenly Father, each one of us can see into our hearts and see the same kind of traits that were in Peter and Pilate and Herod and Simon and that thief and in sweet Mary and her desire to give her all to you, and yes, in Judas too. We want to pray that we won't be like Judas in our hearts, but that we will be willing to give our lives over to you so that we shall seek only your glory, so that we shall never be victims of greed, and so that we will not give in to our guilt but see in the cross that victory which we need and which makes us able to show your love to others. For any person here this day who senses those needs, make them to know that that's the first step toward the Savior and that you'll step toward them and that great things can be spoken 
to a truly penitent soul. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and our guide, be and abide with you all, now and forevermore.